Hi, everybody. I'm Beverly. I'm an alcoholic. Why is it that I always wait till the last minute and then I, all of a sudden I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I have, now I have to wait. I have to talk fast and hurry up so I can get out of there and go. Uh, I want to mention my friend uh, Don this morning. Um, uh, Mickey mentioned him last night in her lead. He's uh, of the love of my life. Um, and uh, I'm here today because of him, so I want to thank him for that. And uh, thank Pat for calling me and Stacy for sitting and talking to me for a couple of minutes this morning because I'm very nervous. And uh, thank my husband for driving me down here today. We had a wonderful trip. Um, we've, I've had a lot of things going on in my life the past couple of weeks, things that have made me reflect on my life, of where I've come from and how far I have come and where I'm at today and the things that I can do in my life today because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my sobriety date is March 25, 1975. My home group is the Lawrence Group in Erie, Pennsylvania. And if you're ever in Erie on a Wednesday night, uh, you can come to that meeting. We have, at that meeting, we have every group home, every uh, rehab person, um, anybody that's, that's looking to find out about alcoholism or Alcoholics Anonymous comes to that meeting on Wednesday night. But let me tell you, it's the best meeting in Erie. It's the oldest group, and we've, um, we've had lots of steering committee meetings and lots of um, uh, uh, group conscience meetings uh, because of so much that's going on in Alcoholics Anonymous today that we, it, we seem to be losing control of. And so we all buckled up and, and uh, got strong and wrote a nice statement, and uh, these people love to come there every week because they're welcome. You know, they're welcome, and we give them the very best AA that they can, they're ever going to get anywhere because, because it's so hard today to get the best AA that a new person needs. Well, I was born into an alcoholic family. My father was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. It doesn't mean that that's why I'm an alcoholic, except the environment that I, raised in, that I was raised in um, wasn't really good, you know. Any of us that were raised in alcoholic homes know that. We had, I'd raised myself. I have a brother that's two years younger than I am and a sister that's seven years younger. Neither of them are alcoholics. I had a mother that was so busy taking care of my father that she couldn't take care of us. So um, I was it. And I learned how to manipulate very young, and I learned how to, to do things that, that got the attention that I needed. And uh, it wasn't the right way, but it was the only way that I knew. I learned very young about um, the magic of falling in love with love. And that's mostly what my story is about this morning, is I was, uh, because I wasn't given love or shown love as a child, I had to get it from the outside. And uh, I was laughing to myself the other day thinking, I can remember the first time I ever had that sense of, of, of magic, of love, you know, is I was 12 years old and it was the paper boy and he was driving by on his bicycle and he was so cute. And it was so magical. I loved it. And so I go outside every day and watch for him to drive by on that bicycle just so I could just so I could see him and get that feeling. I lived in a world of paper dolls when I was a kid, you know, the magical world of paper dolls where everything was, was you could control everything, you know, and make everything happy. Um, I guess I was a loner when I was a kid. We had somebody, I heard somebody talking about that, that uh, I was a loner. I... Uh, I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. I didn't really like who I was inside. And although I couldn't compare myself to anybody else, 
during those days. It was just a given thing that was inside of me. You know, that I never felt really good about me. That thing that was inside of me that made me aware of me, I wish that could have been in somebody else's body. When I was um, 16, I found my first love, and it was wonderful. It was so wonderful. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And when we, were, we went together about 10 months, and he found another girlfriend. And I, you know, this was teenage love. And there was no sex involved at this time in my life. I'm uh, 62 years old today, so this was a long time ago, you know. And, um, but it was, the, it was that, that sense of, of being needed, that sense of, of having somebody fulfill the feelings inside of me that I couldn't, that I couldn't get anywhere else. And I really loved this guy. He was... He was just so wonderful. And when he left me, I, I can still remember laying in my bed crying, wishing I could die. I didn't know how I was going to live without him. I could not imagine it. There was no God in my life at that time. Um, I was raised with a Catholic God, but he was way up there in the heavens. And there were these Ten Commandments, and there was this thing called confession. Well, I never made a good confession in my whole life until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and did a fifth step. I wasn't going to tell any priest all the stuff that was going on inside of me. There was no way I could ever admit to anyone that I was full of anger and full of hate. And, uh, you know, hated my mother, hated my father, hated my brother, hated my sister. I was full of hate. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel anger or rage as Mickey, Mickey talked about last night back then, only because I didn't know what it was. You know, there was just hate. That was the, that's the way I could describe anything in my life. It was not, and it was not half measures. It was full hate. Um, so I, um, I just could not imagine how I was going to live without this, this guy. But I, I, in my senior year in high school, my mother and I had a terrible, terrible fight, and I went to live with my aunt and uncle. Now, this was the best year of my life. I was, I was not drinking. I did not pick up a drink till I'm, until I was 29 years old. But it was, it was the first time in my life that I had a sense of family, that these people focused on me. They had four children of their own, but they also focused on me and made me feel like I was part of the family. Um, they, uh, my aunt taught me to sew. My uncle sat with me for hours and talked about the world and homework, and, and I felt the love. And when I went to bed at night, I... I, I I, when I went to sleep, it was the, a peaceful sleep. It was like I finally belonged somewhere. And, um, and that was when I, and I left and went back home to live with my mother right before I graduated from high school. And um, I got a job. I met the man that I was to marry. We got married. We were married for 10 years. In that marriage, there were three daughters. I never talked much about the marriage because it was, a, uh, it was not born in heaven. <laughs> Um, it was it was a guy. It was somebody I could grab onto and and um, put a noose around his neck and own his soul, and uh, and he was going to fulfill all my needs and I was going to live happily ever after. And I didn't feel about this guy the way I felt about this 16-year-old love. But see, he was my way out, and uh, that was how I looked at it. And so he was a good guy. He's still a good guy today. Um, we look at each other every once in a while, and we're real glad we're not married to each other anymore. And he's got a lot of years in Alcoholics Anonymous today. But uh, way back then, um, he was a good husband. He was a good father. And I was a little girl in that marriage. I was uh, a perfectionist. Everything had to be perfect at all times. My children had to be perfect. And I gave my children exactly what I was given as a kid, nothing. 
I didn't know how to love, so I didn't know how to show them love. I didn't know I wasn't taught patience. I didn't know how to be patient with them. They had to be little adults from the time they were born. From the time then, from that, from the time they were born until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they were full of fear. They were full of anger. They were full of rage. They, uh, they, they had, they had absolutely no comfort, no joy in their lives, because I didn't know how to give it to them. And I, I made my husband so miserable all the time that he didn't know how to give it to them either. I was, uh, as the years went by, and you know, the big book talks about the personality disorder, the mental illness, the things that we go through inside, um, the self-centeredness, the ego, and that's what I was all about. I didn't, I didn't know how to care about you. It wasn't that I didn't care about you. I didn't know how to care about you. You know, I had this thing inside of me all my life that I wanted it to come out. I, you know, I looked at these daughters and I felt this love. I felt this thing inside of me. I wanted so badly to, to comfort them, but I didn't know how. And I was afraid of the commitment even if I did. You know, if my husband came up and put his arms around me, I didn't want him to do that. I, d I didn't want to be committed to anything. I didn't want to go to bed and have sex for that night or whatever it was. I just, you know, I, I was so wrapped up in self. So as the years went by, I, um, I, I got sicker and sicker. And one night I was at a party with some friends, and I, somebody gave me a glass of G&D Margot Port wine. And oh my God, it was the answer to all my prayers. It took away that knot in my stomach. It took away that pain and that fear and that, that lack of, of uh, self-worth. Uh, I felt so good sitting there. It was like I was, my heart was, I was on fire. You know how it is when we take that first drink of um, where we react to it. And uh, from that night forward until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was hooked. That was my savior. Now, I knew my father was an alcoholic because my mother told me he was. I saw him on his deathbed when he died. I saw the state that he was in. He was in Skid Row in Buffalo, and he died in a, in a charity hospital. And I was there when he died, and I, and, 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 and I knew what an alcoholic was. But, you know, when I took that drink, I thought, God, you know, I thought back to my father and where he was. And I was matching my insides to his outsides, and I was saying, there's no way I could ever be an alcoholic. This stuff is too good to be true. And so from that day forward, every day, a little sip of wine in the afternoon, or, uh, and then take a nap, or read the, watch the soaps, or, or you know, because I was a housewife back in those days. And, um, and so the kids would go in for a nap, and oh, man, it was magic. And then pretty soon it's after the nap, and then before dinner, and then after dinner. And it didn't take long for the progression to start setting in, that I wanted more and more and more of this stuff that made me feel so good that was eventually turning me into something that made me feel so bad. And that didn't take long either, because I would start out very mellow and nice, and then all that anger would start coming out. All that hate would start coming out. Then I started knowing what hate was and rage was. And then this mother that lived across the street from me, I hated her. I absolutely hated her. And, um, and I wrote her letters. And then I, but you know what would happen is I'd get up the next day and wouldn't have the courage to mail the letter. So I knew that I better go to the mailbox when I was drunk to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And how many times I would get up in the morning and think, oh, my God, I would give anything, anything to go and get those letters out of that mailbox. But, you know, I wasn't smart like some people in this program that stood at the podium and said they wrote nasty letters. They'd go to the mailbox and wait for the mailman to come and then take the letter back. And I never thought of that. So my mother got a lot of horrible. She got all my anger, all my hate, all my rage in those letters. And through the years, I alienated my family. 
Well, one night, this young, this sister, younger than I was, came over and said, come on out. Now, I'd never been anywhere without my husband up to this point in my life. Never. I'd never been to a bar. I'd never been anywhere without him. We would go with friends to dances and, and uh, you know, go out for social affairs, but I never went out drinking. And so I went with his sister that night, and that was another magical thing that happened. I walked into this room, and the lights were dim, and the music, and I loved music, and I loved dancing, and a drink or two, and man, there were 25 Prince Charmings in the room that night, and I thought, oh my God, this is it. This is what I missed. I got married too young. I had these kids. I was all, I was all tied down. This is what I missed. This is what's the matter with me. I need to get out and enjoy this. And so that's what I did. And it wasn't long before the, the, uh, we divorced. I took these three children and moved them to the west side of Erie. My geographical cure, I got a job and um, proceeded to take them and me right straight to hell. And for the next six years, that's what I did. Um, I became just as addicted to men as I did to the booze. In the beginning, there were some nice Prince Charmings, but the Prince Charmings could not understand why on Friday night I would go out and find another Prince Charming. And I didn't understand that either, but it was the magic. It was that magic. It was the search was on. The search was on that the big book talks about. And I didn't know that it was a spiritual search. I thought it was a man's search. And, you know, that magic, that love, that this thing that this person is going to take care of me for the rest of my life. And so my daughters were exposed to everything. I held nothing back from them because I was more of a child than they were. And I acted like more of a child than they were. But I'll tell you what, every morning in my life I would get up with a hangover because I drank every night until I went into a blackout or I got drunk. And um, I couldn't live without the drinking. I could not live. I could not imagine living without the drinking because that wine took away all the pain. But I'd get up in the morning and I'd say, today things are going to be different. Today I'm going to help my kids with their homework. I'm going to fix them a meal. I'm going to clean their clothes. I'm going to clean the apartment. Today, things are going to be different. And then as the day went by and 3 o'clock would come and 5 o'clock would come and I'd, and I'd stop at the store and get that fresh jug, I didn't know about the first drink, but I couldn't imagine not drinking. I did not know that what my problem was was alcoholism. And so I could take that fresh jug home and I'd have that first drink. And then it didn't matter anymore. Then every night, it didn't matter anymore. Then it didn't matter if they ate. It didn't matter if... If I helped them with their homework, and then pretty soon I'm the little girl, I'm crying, I'm burdening them. I was the mother that went to the PTA meetings, drunk, <laughs> breathed in the nuns' faces, told them what a horrible life I had. If things were different, things would be different for them. My children had problems in school. Um, they had, they, they just, you know, when I think of them and I think of all the destructive things that I did to them, I could stand up here and cry. But any of you, especially mothers, uh, who have drank the way I drank and did what I did, and my kids saw it all. I dragged my daughter out. At, I called her from a bar at 12 o'clock at night, and she was 12, 13 years old, to walk two miles to meet me because I lost my car. I couldn't find where I left my car. I uh, abused them. I screamed at them. I just, I, I, nothing, nothing that they could do during those years, and these are little girls, nothing that they could do during those years pleased me in any way. They tried to hide my booze. They did everything. They tried to comfort me. I, they, nothing worked. I remember the 10-year-old came home one time, and she was so excited she bought me a dress in a junk store for 50 cents. And it was a size 14, and I took a size 9, and I had just enough to drink that day, and I took that dress, and I threw it across the room, and I said, that's the ugliest dress I've ever seen. 
That little girl did not buy me a present again until she was 18 years old. And it was a wristwatch. I'm emotional today. I'm sorry. It's been a tough week. <coughs> I get past the kids. Um, it was tragic. But you know what I want to say right now before I forget? I have no guilt about that today. I have no guilt about any of it today, about any of the way I lived my life or how I treated my children. Because these girls are all grown up today, and they're, um, they're mothers, and they're Al-Anons, and they wouldn't have the life that they had have had they not lived the life that they lived when they were growing up. And they know that, and I know that, and it's, we have a wonderful, wonderful life together today. Well, all right, so let's get past the kids. We all know what the pain of our children. I also was a Miss Fix-It. You know, I, I had a girlfriend named Gretchen in Erie. She was a gorgeous babe, and she could wear minks. And, um, and we, we, I sponsored her, and thank God we never drank together because we would have killed each other. But she could, she was like Loretta Young. She could walk down the stairs and drake and uh, drag a, a mink, you know, and, uh, and be glowing. And, and, um, and I'd walk down the stairs dragging a mink. I'd trip on it. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't anything about me that was cool. Um, and so I'd go to, Gretchen would go to the bars. The guys would buy her the drinks, and she'd pay the price. Well, I'd go to the bars and buy my own drinks and give it away for nothing because I didn't want to owe you guys anything. <laughs> I was this uh, Ms. Fix-It type, you know. I did everything myself. Even today, my husband gets mad at me because I, you know, I still have that tendency every so often. And I would, I'd, I'd, I'd like, say, for instance, I had a refrigerator that um, uh, it, it needed to be defrosted. And, and, and girls, remember the days of the before the frostery refrigerators, and you had the hot pans, and you put it on the stove, and you boil the water, and then you'd stick it in the stick it in the freezer, and the ice would melt. Well, that wasn't happening fast enough for me, so I got out an ice pick, and I'm picking away at the ice in the freezer, and all of a sudden I hear this, and uh, well, you know, the, the freezer didn't work anymore. So I called the refrigerator repairman the next day, and he said, uh, uh, and oh, I ran and got some Elmer's glue and put it in the hole. And, the, and when the refrigerator repairman came, he said, Lady, whatever that white stuff is in that hole, there's nothing I can do to fix this freezer, you know, because all the Freon came out of it. So I had to buy a new refrigerator. Uh, televisions, um, uh, small appliances, I take them apart. I had a, a little toolbox that's, uh, that when I was sober, I opened it up and looked in it, and they had all these parts in it. And I said to my kids, what is all this stuff? And they said, well, that's the leftover from the mixer, the leftover from the toaster, um, that I take it apart, and then I couldn't put it all back together. But I saved the parts just in case I need them again sometime for something. I don't know. It's part of the insanity of, you know, not having it all together mentally. Or how about, how about the TV where it says do not touch high voltage and you get in there with the old screwdriver and bang around and not even take the plug out, not even unplug it. We, you know, don't tell an alcoholic not to do something. But I ruined the refrigerator, and that's the way I lived my life. Nobody could do I wouldn't ask anybody for anything. I didn't think I was worthy of it for one thing, and then I didn't want to owe you anything for, for another reason. And uh, where all that came from, I don't know, but that's the kind of a person that I was. So needless to say, I... Um, uh, five and a half years into this drinking, I went away and made a retreat. And um, my husband, who became, who was my ex-husband at that time, got remarried because I threw my oldest daughter out. 
She wasn't living the way I thought she should live. She was 13 years old. Um, I threw her out. And he got married to make a home for her. And, you know, I didn't want my husband during those years, but I didn't want anybody else to have him either, you know. So I used to give him a hard time when he'd get a girlfriend. So when I went away and made this retreat and he got married, my whole world fell apart because now I had nothing to hold on to, nothing. I'd look in the mirror and, uh, and see this face. Uh, and see this hair. I used to wear this teased up hair and I used to wear the mini skirts and the high boots and everything matched and, you know, be out in, in the Sagerbund Club at 1215, uh, dancing up a storm every Friday and Saturday night of my life. And I'd look in the mirror to get dressed to go to these, this place and I'd never look in my eyes. I could never look in my eyes. I could never look at me. But at some point during the time from the, when my husband got married until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I looked in the mirror and I saw me. And I didn't like what I saw. And I didn't like who I, the mother I'd become. I didn't like the daughter I'd become. I didn't like the woman I'd become. I hated who I'd become. Because inside of me was this person that did not want to live the way I was living. And I didn't know how not to live that way. I had no direction in my life. I thought I was absolutely going crazy. I came home from this retreat and I felt good. I thought, and what it was told to me later is that I got some something spiritual that weekend and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I came home and the two daughters that were left at home, I promised them that things were going to be different in our lives. I still was not looking at myself as an alcoholic. I, I, I blamed you. If you would change, then I could, then things would be okay with me. I never, I didn't know that, that it had to come from within me. And so I, I, I didn't drink all week. And then the Friday night, I had to go out, though, you see, because I'd missed meeting a Prince Charming the weekend before while I was at this retreat. I missed something out there, you know? So you had to go from bar to bar to bar to find him. It's like going from liquor store to liquor store to liquor store, you know, so, so that nobody would know that the, person, the, the people that worked in the liquor stores didn't um, know that I, that I was drinking every day. So I had seven liquor stores that I went to a week. And... Um, so at any rate, I, um, I went out this Friday night, and my God, I just went out to have a good time. And I woke up on Saturday morning in a place I didn't want to be with someone I didn't want to be with, and I couldn't believe it happened again. I couldn't believe I'd done it again. And so that's the point in my life when I gave up and didn't want to live anymore. I, I drank to die. And I thought, I'm mentally ill. I'm going to end up in a mental institution, and there's nothing I can do about it because there's no way that I know to change. I had no way to change. There was nothing inside of me that guided me as to what to do to change. This person that I had become that I hated so badly that I wanted to die, and I didn't know what to do. And so six months of that went on. And then one morning I got up like any other morning of my life and I was hungover and I went to work and I came home that night with a fresh jug and I, my daughters and I, my oldest daughter by this time had come back home and we had this horrible fight and I stormed out with this fresh jug and I said, I'm not coming back here. I'm not going to live like this anymore. I don't deserve to live like this anymore. And they all knew that there was something different. They, my youngest daughter, who was 10 or 11 by that point in time, fell apart. And my two older daughters called the family in. And it, eventually, at some point in time, I came home that night. And it was like a courtroom scene in my living room. It's what, I, I, what the, in, the rehabilitation centers call intervention. And this one was set up by God that night. And they all sat there telling my daughters, telling everything that I'd done. 
exposed me to everything in my life that I'd done, and I was so ashamed. All I wanted to do was climb through that floor. Well, I threw everybody out. The kids went to bed, and I'm sitting in the living room, and I'm staring at this coffee table, this, this half-empty glass on this coffee table. And my husband, my ex-husband, before he walked out the door that night, said, Bev, for God's sake, stay away from the line for one week. And I'm staring away, and I thought, oh, my God, I can't stay away from that line for five minutes. And all of a sudden, this realization hit me. And I picked up the phone, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, don't ask me how I knew, where I knew. I have no idea, except I picked up the phone, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and it was an answering service in Erie that we still have today. And a girl called me back. I told her many lies, one of which, how much do you drink? And I told her a glass of wine a day. And it was a glass of wine a day, you know. Unless you came to visit me and I had to hide the glass so you wouldn't know I was drinking. And I'd hide it in mysterious places because then when you'd leave, I couldn't find where I hid it. So then I'd have to pour another glass. Now, in that, in that case, it would be two glasses of wine a day, and they were never empty. But I did. I told her a glass of wine a day. And uh, we talked for a long time that night, and she asked me if I could uh, not drink uh, and go to a meeting the next night, and I said, yes, I could. And I didn't understand the power of that statement. But I did wake up the next morning feeling different. And I went to work, and I told the women I worked with that I wasn't going to drink that day, that I called AA, and they were going to help me with my drinking. I came home that night. I walked up the stairs to this apartment, and I walked through the door, and there were Kenny and Carol from Erie, and um, she put her arms around me, and it was like the first drink, you know. Something changed in my life. And what changed was, for the first time in 35 years, someone understood my pain. And so she, they brought me into the kitchen where my da daughters had prepared a meal, and we sat down and ate. And Kenny commented on my dirty stove because, well, it was full of spaghetti. My kids have cooked a lot of spaghetti in six years and uh, could take your fingernails and scratch down the side of the stove, you know, and they commented on my dirty stove. And then they told my children how I'd be going to meetings and that I was an alcoholic and, uh, and that if I did certain things that I could have a life that, was, that I never knew possible and that they would be able to enjoy that life with me. They were right up front, you know, right up front. There was no... Um, how do they say it in meetings today? Uh, we don't want to embarrass you. We want to get to know you. Well, you know, there was no that whether I was embarrassed or not embarrassed. This was life and death. This was the end of the rope. Uh, if I was embarrassed or not embarrassed, it wasn't going to make any difference. If you want what we have and you do what we say, you'll have a life that you never knew possible. So I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And um, I went there in my high boots and my... Uh, my mini skirts and my wild teased hair. I told dirty jokes. I didn't know any better when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know any better. Thank God for my sponsor. Thank God that my sponsor brought me to my first meeting, introduced me to the group. I didn't even have to stand up and say, I'm Beverly, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't have to say that. All I had to do was be willing, be willing to go to the meeting. And uh, Doc Fagan from Cleveland led that night. And uh, he'd had several years, lots of years of sobriety, and he went out and got drunk. But, you know, that didn't bother me. What bothered me was the people for two, two weeks or three weeks that got up and reintroduced themselves. And I thought, God, if they can't stay sober, how am I going to stay sober? 
And my sponsor told me to buy a big book. If I had the money to buy the wine, I had to buy the big book. And, you know, I've bought many big books through the years. And I guess from this point on until the end of my talk, it's what happened to me. It's my experience, strength, and hope. And uh, I bought the big book. And I was told to go home and read the big book and start with the fifth chapter. Now, I wouldn't tell a person that today. I would tell a person, go home and read the big book and start from the beginning of the book. But this is the way it was told to me. And so that's what I did. I went home and, uh, and I started reading the big book. Now, I got myself into a jam when I was sober a few weeks. My sponsor saw this, you know, when I walked to a, into a room and saw all you guys, I thought, wow, this is like dying and going to heaven. You know, you're not drinking, but there's still a room full of guys. And you were guys that put your arms around me and gave me a hug and made me feel at home. And I wouldn't have cared if, you were, if your wives were there or what was going on. If I could take you home, I would have done it in a city minute. But I had a sponsor that said, Beverly, um, I have to tell you something. You, uh, you are a noose around their neck and you want to own their soul. And if you want to get sober and stay sober, you've got to leave the guys alone. And I thought, who the hell is she to tell me that? She has a guy on her arm, but what I didn't notice, what I didn't notice or pay attention to was that she was sober six years at the time. And I hated this woman to the core of my soul. Remember, now I've put down the drink, but the hate, the anger, the rage, and everything else is there. It's in there. And I hated her. But, you know, I wanted what she had. That first night when she came and put her arm around me and I knew she understood my pain, I, I wanted what she had. So I was willing to go to any length. To, to, to stay sober, including that. But I'll tell you, I fought it all the way. I fought it all the way. I never did it. I never went out on a date. I never did anything because I was afraid that you'd tell her. You know, in my home group, everybody told everybody what was going on with the people they were sponsoring within that group. So I played it straight, but I didn't like it. But I'll tell you what I learned. <clears throat> I learned what love is. I hated women when I came to this program. Absolutely hated them. You were backstabbers. You were husband stealers. Because that's what I was. And so, therefore, I didn't want anything to do with you. But this sponsor taught me what love is. She taught me how to love women, to care about women. She taught me how to love men. Or I should say Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to love. She sent me in the direction that, that I was able to learn how to love. And today in my life, I sponsor, sometimes my husband goes absolutely crazy with the telephone calls that I get in my life. But you know, I've been very active in Alcoholics Anonymous for 26 years. It'll be 27 years in March. And I've sponsored a lot of women. Because you know, in the beginning, <clears throat> because there weren't men in my life, I did everything. My sponsor said, go home and be the mother your daughters deserve to have. And so I did that. I'd go home and I'd go up the steps of that apartment and I'd say the first line of the serenity prayer and I'd get beyond that door and there'd be these screaming and we were like four wild screaming cats when I first got sober. But you know, the time went by and I went home and I went up the stairs to that apartment and I'd go in and if they had a little fight, they'd close the door to the bedroom and go in there and fight. And then the day came and there wasn't fighting anymore. And love started to happen in our home. And I'd go home from the meetings and I learned how to hug my children. It was very hard in the beginning to put my arms around them. I didn't know how to hug. I didn't know how to show affection. I didn't know how to say, I love you. And then an Al-Anon woman gave me this uh, a verse uh, by, I, I can never pronounce his name right, Cahil Gabram, on children. 
And in there it says that we are lent, our God lends us our children to raise in his image and likeness so that he can do with them what he wants to do with them. So I had no control of them. I learned that. And the little book Acceptance taught me that I can't change anybody but me, so I might as well work on me. And so I had to let my children go mentally, you know, and come home from the meetings and be a power of example to what AA was giving me. And it worked. It worked. Because time went on and I got, you know, I'd lay in bed at night and read that boring big book and, uh, and, and read the stories in the back of the big book and I'd fall asleep at night with it. But, you know, there was a sense of peace in reading that book. Now, I can't quote anything to you from that book today, but if you look at my book, you know I've read it and read it and read it and read it and I opened it up this morning to read it again in a vision for you and I wrote it down oh my god you know because I'm on the meeting kick right now and on the in it in a vision for you tells you what the AA meetings are you know what they really are and welcoming new people as long as so long as they mean business it's wow you know there's so much in that book I should read it more than what I do but I read the book every night. That one I couldn't stand the book anymore. I read Sybil. And any of you who have read Sybil knows, oh, man, you know. Her life was a little tougher than mine, I'll say that. <clears throat> and the years went by, you know. The years went by. I, I didn't got into my steps. I did my fourth and my fifth. And, and I, I got into, Mickey uh, was talking about the tenth step last night, the continuing taking personal inventory. When I lay my head on the pillow today, it's, I go through my day. It doesn't take me long anymore because it's kind of like a, it's a spiritual life today. I live a spiritual life. I've learned. I learned about this God of my understanding. And I have a relationship with him today that's so powerful. But it's, it's in me. It's not outside of me. You know, God lives in me and he works through me. And I, and I learned that in this program too. And so I went about my way. And in the big book, it talks about uh, uh, the uh, imperious urge to have sex. And, you know, God in his mercy took away that urge for a long, long time. But it says when you get the imperious urge, go out and carry the message to another alcoholic. And let me tell you, getting down to sponsorship, I sponsored a lot of women, a lot of women. I mean, I was very busy in AA playing it straight. But, you know, that's how I stayed out of myself. That's how I got excited. That's what I was telling Stacy this morning. We, it's an exciting, wonderful life. But we've got to get out of ourselves to do it. And how do we do it? We go to meetings. We carry the message. We sponsor people. There's not enough sponsorship in this program today. There's too many people coming to this program without a sponsor that don't know not to tell dirty jokes in meetings, that don't know not to talk in meetings, that don't know not to bring their little kids to meetings and let them run around while, while a new person is sitting shaking on his hands and, and doesn't know what to do. It's attraction rather than promotion. And how are we going to attract AAs people, new people to this meeting, if they come to the meeting and don't say, my God, what kind of a meeting was that? And so I, you know, I, so I, I did all this with the sponsorship. I was sober 13 years and I met Prince Charming. And I really, he was like the 16 year old love. I drove him absolutely out of his mind. I, I was, I was so, I just, I loved him so. I lusted so, I guess is the word you want to say. Lusted so. And, um, and we went together for five years, and it was the worst, first, worst five years of my life. In the worst five years of his, he'll tell you that. It was horrible, because here I was, this 13-year-old girl, you know, and I wanted him, and I found this sense of, oh, this magic of the 16-year-old love. 
It was there and it was so powerful and I didn't know how to deal with it. But see, God doesn't waste a second in this program. He doesn't put people in our lives for us to live happily ever after. He puts people in our lives for spiritual growth. And this man was in my life for me to learn about me. And all these character defects that I had inside of me all my life, they came right out full bloom. And I better work on them or I'm going to get drunk. And that was what the story was for five years. I worked on me. I worked on me. I worked on me. I got so tired of working on me. And that's how long it took. And we broke up after five years. And when that happened, I was absolutely devastated. It was as bad, if not worse, as it was when I was 16 years old. The pain was so horrible. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. But the only difference now is I had God. And I knew that God was in me, working through me, and that this was going to be okay. This too shall pass. But you've got to walk through the pain. I couldn't take any pills. I couldn't drink. I couldn't do anything. I had to walk through the pain. And I got into some counseling at that time. That helped. That really helped a lot to see what kind of a woman I am and what my expectations are for me. And uh, to let go of some of these old ideas that I'm, I'm who I am. And I tried to be who I wasn't with this man and I didn't know how to be any other way. A year and a half later he called. It was, a, uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful hearing his voice. This time, things weren't so well in his life, but it didn't matter to me because I loved him and I was going to fix him. <laughs> and old Cassini, you know, old Cassini was right in there with the old screws. And um, I didn't listen. But, you know, I was sober long enough to know that I had to do what was right for me. I had to do what was right for me. In this relationship, I knew, I learned, don't judge other human beings. Don't look at someone and judge who they are just by the way they act. Because we have, you know, I learned that I'm this wonderful, wonderful Beverly. And there's this, this boyfriend who's got these defects of character that are so obvious. But, you know, what I saw in me is I saw devious, you know, all these things inside of me that I, as a kid, I learned how to manipulate. I learned how to do certain things. I had to unlearn them. And in this relationship, I learned how to unlearn them. So when he called me, I was a different person a year and a half later. We got married. It was the most wonderful day of my life. It was a beautiful wedding. It was, the church was filled with AAs. Everybody that was there was happy for me. They didn't look at him. They didn't look at me. They were happy for us. It was a wonderful day. And we're, we were married five years last July, and it's been a rocky five years. But I'm, I'm going to say it's, 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 it's not without love, and it's not without pain, but we're two alcoholics, and we, and we both have to work on ourselves. And when we get into each other's lives and start telling each other how to live, we're both dynamic personalities or Oh, what, I, what, not, I don't want to use the word explosive, not dynamic, explosive personalities, you know. And, um, but I'm, I, am, I love him so. And we were driving down here yesterday, and he said, uh, are you okay? I said, yeah, I have my husband with me. And uh, we're taking a drive on a beautiful day, and what could be more okay than that? You know, and God living in me, and, and, and I was talking about sponsorship, and, I, uh, and these women... All these years later, they still call me. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want to be any other place than where I am. I've never stopped going to meetings. I've never stopped living Alcoholics Anonymous.
Uh, I, I've, if I get away from meetings, and my mother was very ill uh, these, this past month, and we thought we were going to lose her and she came to live with me, I'm able to do that now. I'm able to be a caregiver to this mother that I hated so badly. And I love her unconditionally. She hasn't changed, but I have. This aunt and uncle that I love so dearly. He died two weeks ago, and she died three days ago. And I had to give the literature, the, I had to talk or, you know, read at both funerals. And it was so hard. And, and when this aunt died, I've never lost touch with this aunt. She was always more my mother than my mother. And um, even up to the last year, I spent some time with her and always told her how much I appreciated because she changed the course of my life. By giving me that year, they changed the course of my life. Uh, I told you about a home group and this home group and I, I'd sit in the meetings and I'd see what was going on there and I'd think, oh my God, these the new people, what are they getting here? They're not getting anything here. The people from the rehabs are coming in and the group homes and they don't have sponsors. They don't even know if they're alcoholics. They've got a piece of paper that says they've got to be at this meeting. And you know how many times have people stood at the podium and said, I had to go to a meeting and take a slip, and thank God I did. And so we don't have a right to judge whether they should be there or they shouldn't be there. Only they have the right to judge. But we, as responsible home group members, have a responsibility to let them know that while they're there, whether they want to be there or not, shut up, sit down, and listen. And then when the meeting's over, go out and do whatever you want to do. But you might get something here for you to see that you really belong here. And so that's been my soapbox the past few months. I just, and, and like I said, we've, we've straightened up our home group. We get, oh, and the Lawrence group was, was never a huge group. Uh, maybe 70, 80 people we get there. And right now, last Wednesday night, they counted 118 people. And they're, and they're all new. And we get slips like this. But they come in, they're happy when they come in because they know they're welcome there, but they know they better shape up or we just go and even right during a meeting. If somebody's talking out loud during a meeting, we go right over and say, if you don't want to be here, go. And if you don't like it here, find another meeting. We got meetings all over Erie. Go someplace else. If you don't want to be here, don't be here because there's too many of us that want to be here or too many of us that are here to see if we really want to be here. And so we listen. Um, I told you about my mothers and I told you about these daughters and I told you about this husband. I just had to write little notes to remember. And, and of course, my sponsor, I never saw fit to ever get another sponsor. I used this sponsor for years and years and years. Today, I have, I have people in my life that I talk to all the time, girls that I sponsor that really help me. You know, so there's not the need to pick up the phone to call the sponsor, but I didn't jump from sponsor to sponsor to sponsor. And the... And the um, in the literature, that's another thing. I came across AA. What is AA? Or is AA for you? And I started looking at that thing this morning. We don't stress literature enough in this program. There's all our answers about whether we should be here or not be here is in the literature. So I, um, I, I hope I said something to help somebody this morning. Uh, I, I know I helped myself. I, I always read this because this is who I am today. Uh, regardless of all the other things in my life, 
uh, that go on about me. Uh, that I, Yes, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and yes, I have a God of my understanding, and he lives in me and works through me, and my spiritual life is strong, and, I'm, and it'll get stronger and stronger. And I told Stacy this morning, she's sober four years, and I'm here to, and I said, Stacy, I'm here to tell you that it gets better. And she said, can it really get better? And I said, gets better. And I've got, I've got the Cassinis of the world that tell me, just keep coming back because it gets better. It keeps getting better. And I can't imagine how it could get any better, but it does. But here's who I am today. After a while, you learn the subtle difference between holding a hand and chaining a soul. And you learn that love doesn't mean leaning and company doesn't mean security. And you begin to learn that kisses aren't contracts and presents aren't promises. And you begin to accept your defeats with your head up and your eyes open, with the grace of an adult and not the grief of a child. And you learn to build all your roads on today because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans. After a while, you learn that even sunshine burns if you get too much. So plant your own garden and decorate your own soul instead of waiting for someone to bring you flowers. And you learn that you really can endure, that you really are strong, and that you really do have worth. And thank you very much.